Hello and I am back again with a pre-episode request. So as you guys might know, Real Life Ghost Stories came third in the British Podcast Awards, thanks to you absolute little legends. Now originally when I heard there was an Irish Podcast Awards, I thought to myself, hey, if I came third in the British Podcast Awards, then maybe we could come first in the Irish Podcast Awards. And actually, having listened to other Irish podcasts in the last couple of weeks and hearing all the really big podcasts, look for people to vote for them. I uh, highly doubt that's going to happen. However, it would be really great if I was featured somewhere in the top 20 because it's really helpful. Since coming third in the British Podcast Awards Listener Choice Award, I've had loads of different podcasts reach out to do collaborations and stuff. So it really does work in terms of advertising. And I can only thank you guys for that because you took the time to vote. So if you can and if you want to, please sling a vote to Real Life Ghost Stories on www.theirishpodcastawards.ie forward slash vote. It's exactly the same as the last time. You have to vote and then verify by email and that is it. It takes two seconds to vote and as with the last time, if you listen to any other indie Irish podcasts, please throw them a vote too. Welcome to episode 169 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I would like to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Lorraine Jacobus and the Rattling Brothers, Sai Kazim, Ruth Lomas, Rebecca Porter, Elena Lee Stothers, Joyce Brandon, Mark Lax, Michael Wilbur, Ashley Reed, Manat Bala, Paige Jackson, Ruben Henshaw, Steve C.D. Gonzalez Newman, Theresa Thomas, Arthur J. Downey Jr., Neve Defley, Holly Allen, Marlene Montooth, Laura Vineyard, and Catherine Cotton Betteridge. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day and our film review this week. <laughs> Our film review this week is Tusk. Tusk was released in 2014. It has 5.3 out of 10 on IMDb and 45% on Rotten Tomatoes. A brash and arrogant podcaster gets more than he bargained for when he travels to Canada to interview a mysterious recluse who has a rather disturbing fondness for walruses. I mean... I I don't know. I don't know. Right, I'm just going to do... I'm just going to do genuine likes... First, okay, so firstly, this film is a really good satire of like the bro podcasters who think of themselves as really edgy. So Justin Long and Haley Joel Osmond play a podcasting duo who have a podcast called The Not See Party. So N-O-T-S-E-E, which is just the type of stupid, edgy, ridiculous joke that sometimes you hear on those kind of podcasts and you think, oh, you're just not funny, dude. You're not funny. The pair do a really good job at playing those characters that are just wholly unlikable. And look, I've met them. I've listened to them. You've listened to them. We're all aware of these people. We're all aware of who they are. And things like calling their podcast the Not See Party is exactly the type of douchebag behaviour that is often seen in media production. And it's a massive problem within media production. And I really found the satire funny. Like, I laughed a lot when I was watching it. I really disliked the characters like you were meant to. And I thought Justin Long and Hayley Joel Osment both did a really good job at being wholly unlikable. They play the roles really well. And the story begins with the podcast hosts absolutely like ripping into this guy who accidentally went viral trying to do like a routine with a sword and ended up cutting off his own leg. And they're ripping the piss out of him, really making a show of him. He becomes like this viral joke on the internet. And then Justin Long's character decides to go interview him and his girlfriend his long-suffering girlfriend who he treats really badly is like, please don't go. It feels really horrible that you are taking the piss out of this man and now you're going to go interview him and you're just going to take the piss out of him further. Don't do that. And that's where our story begins. The villain in this movie, and surprisingly, the villain is not Justin Long or Hayley Joel Osment. The villain in this movie is great. (laughs) 
there's a bit where he where he sings the nursery rhyme the itsy bitsy spider and I laughed out loud from like nervousness when I was watching it he is a good villain I enjoyed watching him he was the right mix of both ridiculous and threatening and Johnny Depp is in this movie and I didn't even recognize him in it and when I paused the film on I was watching it on Amazon so when I paused it to do something all of the actors that were on screen came up and Johnny Depp came up and I was like what where is he? And he plays the French-Canadian investigator that is helping Haley Joel Osment solve what has happened to his friend. And I was, I didn't even recognise him, didn't recognise him at all. I guess in a way it's kind of important to include in there that it's a, <laughs> it's a very original film. <laughs> I uh, haven't seen anything quite like it in a very long time. I think my neighbours at this stage might be concerned for me because I was watching the film and um, the noise was just a walrus and me hysterically laughing. Those were the noises coming from my house. So um, I spent 102 minutes watching a film about a man being turned into a walrus like the aquatic version of the human centipede there is no other way to describe this film that is exactly what happens it's not a spoiler in terms of um you don't find out until the end you know very early on that 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 justin long is going to be turned into a walrus and i don't mean magically i mean his body is destroyed and dismantled and disfigured to the point that he is a walrus (laughs) It's one of those points where I just felt like, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm watching I'm watching a film about a man being turned into a walrus and I'm supposed to and I'm supposed to I'm supposed to review this. I'm supposed to review it. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Anyway, Justin Long gets turned into a walrus. I don't know how else to say anything about this film. It's exactly as horrific as you might imagine. The reason he gets turned into a walrus is because the bad guy made friends with a walrus on a desert island and loved this walrus and <laughs> and decided that he wanted a walrus friend to reenact being on the island with this walrus. There is a point in the movie where Justin Long has been turned into a walrus and the bad guy is lying against him singing a song and I thought to myself if I was Justin Long in this position if I was a walrus I'd just fucking drown myself. I, that's it there's no going back you can't unwalrus yourself once you've been walrused just drown yourself and be done with it I don't know what to tell you it's an insane film it's insane there is a moment in the film where the bad guy the walrus lover tells this hor- he has this monologue and it's just horrific like it's a really horrible traumatic grim monologue and I thought at that time at that point when he was doing the monologue I thought geez I've I've really misunderstood where this film is going to go because that is dark and scary and horrible and it's all about the human condition and I and then and then no it is just a film about a man being turned into a walrus and I there's probably some deeper meaning to it there's probably some really deep understanding that I don't get. It's a Kevin Smith film as well. And I got from the the titles at the end that it is based on a podcast episode or it's based on like a podcast story. I just don't know what to say about it. I really don't know what to say about it. And I really don't know what to give it out of five. Is it insane? Absolutely, yes. But was it weirdly enthralling? Also, yes. It's definitely not as dark and perverse as a film like The Human Centipede. It is a body shocker, but it's just so, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. I think I'm going to have to give it three stars because I was intrigued. I was like, what is happening? I laughed out loud a lot from like genuinely laughing out loud at the podcast bros, but also laughing out loud at how insane everything was that was happening in the film. Like there were moments with the walrus that I just thought to myself, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. This cannot be my job. Uh, So I'm going to give Tusk three out of five. Fuck it, I'm going to do it. It's three out of five. Which brings us to our story this week. And is this story going to be about walruses or people loving walruses? No, but it is. It's a mystery. It's full of 
absurdity. Uh, we're just, let's just do it. So last week I was approached by No Brow Publishing and they gave me, they gifted me a book called An Illustrated History of Ghosts by Adam Allsuch Boardman. As I said last week, the episode was inspired by that book. And I read a little passage in this book about this particular case and I thought, ooh, that's a good one. So let's let's kind of dive into that particular case. So this story this week was inspired by an illustrated history of ghosts. It's a really good little book. It's really interesting. Like I said last week, it's a great coffee table book full of wonderful illustrations. And it goes through the history of hauntings right back to sort of prehistory and people's beliefs and people's spirituality at that time up until the modern day. Even Zach Bagans gets a mention in there. So the link will be in the description as always of this episode. But let's just let's dive straight into this story. In the 1720s in England, the government effectively ended the restriction of the sale of cheap liquor by shopkeepers. And the result was staggering, if you'll pardon the pun. Cheap, strong gin flooded the streets. 7,000 gin vendors sprung up in the city of London alone. Gin sellers roamed the streets with gin in wheelbarrows and a few pence could get you catastrophically drunk. It became an epidemic and the streets of London were positively littered with people who were literally drunk to the point of incapacitation. Much of the gin was drank by the lower classes, living in slums in a life of pure hardship, just looking for a modicum of escape in a bleak landscape. But there were obvious issues with this. Productivity plummeted because who cares what happens as long as you can drink yourself into oblivion. The crime and death rates soared, and the government realised that they had made a grave mistake. In 1751, the sale of liquor was once again restricted, and overnight, thousands of people who had become alcohol-dependent suddenly could no longer acquire the cheap liquor that they'd become so accustomed to. And many families were left hungry, as every scrabbled for penny was sunk into the pockets of the local public houses. It was a grim time. And this grim time resulted in some very strange sights around the streets of London. Richard Parsons spent most of his evenings at the bottom of a glass and was regularly heard stumbling through the streets of London, stopping in place every so often to sway dramatically and sing drinking songs at the top of his lungs. He had managed to secure a job as the parish clerk at St Sepulchre's Church, where one of his key roles actually involved Newgate Prison. Parsons was tasked with standing outside the cell window of a prisoner who was sentenced to hang at the Tyburn Gallows. He would ring a bell and recite a lengthy and sanctimonious speech encouraging the prisoner to repent. You prisoners that are within, who for wickedness and sin after many mercies shown to you, are now appointed to die tomorrow. Except the problem was that Parsons was invariably pissed as a fart when he would do this, so really what would happen was a vigorous ringing of the bell, combined with a strange, mumbled, half-remembered rendition of the speech, which would inevitably veer into a lovely rendition of whatever song had grabbed the drunken Parsons. Somehow in all of this, Parsons managed to find the time to marry a woman named Elizabeth, and they had two daughters. It was during his time as church clerk, that Richard Parsons had met William and Fanny Kent, and they were desperately seeking accommodation. Parsons surveyed the couple. They looked well-kept, and they looked like they had money. So with money on his mind, he gleefully offered them lodgings at his home on Cock Lane. The Parsons family consisted of Richard and Elizabeth, and their daughters Betty and Anne. Betty was a wild card and was even written about in the Directory of National Biography. She was funny and precocious and was always up to mischief. She was charming and often used that charm to rob people. And it seems that if her father had a harebrained scheme to get some cash, no matter how dubious, Betty was on board. William and Fanny moved into the lodgings and everyone seemed to get on surprisingly well. Either they were unaware of the extent of Richard's drinking Or, as is more likely, they simply didn't care because it was so commonplace. William and Fanny had their own issues to deal with. William was originally from Norfolk. He had married above his status. And Fanny was not actually his wife. 
He was said to be feckless and lazy, much more inclined towards a get-rich-quick scheme than any consistent work, and he fell in love with a woman named Elizabeth Lyons, Fanny's older sister. Elizabeth and William were wed, and Elizabeth gave birth six months after the marriage. She died in childbirth, and Fanny moved into the house to help William and look after the child. The child died two months later, and Fanny remained to be a housekeeper for William. They fell in love but discovered that they could not legally marry. A man could only marry his deceased wife's sister if no child had been born in the original marriage. They went their separate ways with the intention of quelling their romance but their love was too great and eventually Fanny took off to London, cutting off all ties with her family and went to live with William and masquerade as his wife. Although they could not marry, William and Fanny wanted to do something to show their devotion to each other and so they each wrote a will, bequeathing everything to the other, in the event of either of their deaths. And when they met Richard Parsons in St. Sepulchre's Church on that fateful morning, Fanny was four months pregnant. William and Fanny hired a girl named Esther to do the domestic work around their lodgings, and both the Parsons and the Kents lived in a sort of harmony. William and Richard formed a friendship, and William confided in Richard about his current unmarried state and the fact that they were hiding from Fanny's family, who were on the hunt for their sister to bring her home. William regularly went away for business trips to Norfolk, and Fanny was left on her own in the Parsons' house. She formed a strong bond with Betty Parsons, the lively and vivacious daughter, and the two would share a room when William was away on business. It was on one of these occasions that our story really begins. When William was away, Fanny invited Betty to spend the night in her bedroom for company. This was a regular occurrence, and Fanny and Betty quickly fell asleep, comfortable in each other's company. Late into the night, Fanny awoke suddenly, her sleep disturbed by some odd sounds. A loud scratching was reverberating around the room. A rat? A cat? No, it didn't sound like that. It was bigger. She sat up in bed and listened. In the silence of the night, a rough scratching was crackling in the air. Eventually, Fanny chose to ignore the scratching and drifted off to sleep. But the next night, she was again awoken by the scratching, and this time it was accompanied by a knocking. Betty shot up in bed, and in the darkness, Fanny and Betty silently listened to a knocking that got progressively more frantic and aggressive. The next morning, enraged... Fanny confronted Elizabeth Parsons, accusing her of making the sounds throughout the night, but it wasn't Elizabeth. She was not in the habit of spending her nights banging and scratching on the walls. The knocking persisted nightly, and at various points was heard throughout the day. After a while, the noises waned, and they would only be heard intermittently throughout the house. The Parsons and the Kents would chat idly about the noises to each other and to neighbours, but they weren't overly concerned about it. There were bigger fish to fry, like the fact that Richard owed William 12 guineas. William had requested payment numerous times and eventually the lack of repayment resulted in a huge row, which culminated in Richard kicking out the Kents, along with their maid Esther, who everybody affectionately called Carrots. William hastily acquired a room for him, the now eight-month pregnant Fanny and Carrots. Almost as soon as they moved in, Fanny became violently ill. She was first diagnosed as having a virulent fever to which the doctor prescribed bloodletting. But it was soon very clear that Esther had smallpox. After a terrible but short battle with the disease, Esther and her baby died. William was destroyed. The funeral was hastily arranged, but he was met with a predicament. The nameplate on her coffin should legally read Francis Fanny Lines, as they weren't married. But he couldn't bear the thought of her reputation being sullied and her being gossiped about as an unmarried mother, even in death. But he also knew that calling her Francis Fanny Kent was not legally accurate. He opted instead to have no name plaque on her coffin. Fanny's sister Anne was the only family member that attended the funeral. And while the family were wildly against the relationship, she could see just how much William loved her. But she noticed the lack of plaque on the coffin and was truly disturbed by the thought of her sister being buried in a nameless box. 
In January 1760, while Fanny lay dying, strange things began to happen in the Parsons' household. Every time Richard was liquored up, he would tell anyone who would listen that Fanny's illness had been caused by Fanny and William living in sin. The knocks in the house returned, and one day Elizabeth had had enough. She needed someone else to witness the strange phenomena in the house. And while Richard was out running errands, the owner of the public house and a friend to Richard knocked on her door. She ushered him inside, telling him that he needed to hear what was happening. Francis sat at the parlour table with Betty and Elizabeth present when the noises started. A noise was heard. A rapping on the wall which Francis described as knuckles knocking against the wainscot. As he sat listening to the knocking, a scratching started which sounded like a wild animal desperately trying to escape from inside the walls. The raps and scratching continued, but Betty and Elizabeth remained calm, used to the racket. We think it's Elizabeth Kent, Betty explained. You know William's wife who died? We don't think she was very happy about William and Fanny. It was all too much for Franson. He was a superstitious man, and this whole bizarre situation terrified him. He left the parlour and made his way to the front door. As he put his hand on the door handle, he felt something brush past him, the suggestion of a person, and he froze on the spot, panicked. He turned slowly and there, standing on the stairs, was a figure, a white apparition standing on the staircase. It raised an arm to Franson and beckoned at him to come up the stairs. Despite his terror, something in Franson told him to obey, that he needed to follow the spectre. He stepped forward only for Betty Parsons to rush towards him. Don't follow it. Don't follow it, Mr. Franson. Mr. Franson snapped out of his stupor and legged it back to the pub where he spent a sleepless night, wide-eyed and sipping brandy to calm his nerves. Word spread with great speed this time with gossip and rumour trickling down the narrow cobbles of Cock Lane. In December 1761, the noises began to be heard outside the house. So loud and persistent were the knocks and bangs that schoolchildren and masters across the road in Charity School were regularly interrupted by the noise. Playground gossip was rife, and children talked in hushed whispers about the ghosts of Cock Lane. Not only this, but a story had begun to be concocted around the death of Fanny Lyons, which was certainly helped by Richard Parsons. Parsons was very, very bitter about his financial squabbles with William Kent. After Fanny's death, William had sued Richard for the 12 guineas owed, and Richard had not let that lie. The story that circulated was that William Kent was a gold digger who had usurped Fanny Lyons for her family money, and when they had moved to Cock Lane, William had poisoned her in order to get rid of her. As the noises resurfaced in Cock Lane almost two years after James Franson had had his ghostly encounter, it was clear that something had re-emerged in the house. But this time they did not state that it was Elizabeth Kent, no. The family believed that the ghost was that of Fanny Lyons, here to avenge her untimely death at the hands of William Kent. Word eventually reached Reverend John Moore, who was concerned by the religious implications of a spectral entity in Cock Lane, especially in a house that was owned by the church. In January 1762, Reverend Moore visited the Parsons' house. Moore entered the house and made his way up the dark and musty staircase to the bedroom of Anne and Betty Parsons. Both girls were sitting up in bed. The room was shrouded in shadow, as the only light came from a flickering candle in one corner. Elizabeth Parsons, Richard Parsons and their friend Mary Fraser all sat in the semi-darkness around the bed that contained the two girls. Moore took a seat. Nothing happened and a tension grew in the room that seemed to permeate the silence. Moore began to shift in his seat. Then the voice of Mary Fraser pierced the air. She is here. Fanny, do speak to us. Pray tell us something. The scratches and knocks seemed to move around the room, ringing out from various corners. Moore listened intently and asked questions of the householders. It was established that the noises seemed to follow the girls around, especially Betty, with the family believing that this was due to Betty and Fanny's close bond. The family moved to various rooms in the house and the knocking and scratching followed. 
Moore was wholly convinced, and at midnight he left the Parsons' house to be met with a crowd of people who had gathered on the street, also listening to the strange sounds coming from within. Moore decided that the next logical step was to try and ascertain whether the noises had a logical explanation, and he sought the help of a carpenter who checked the house and determined that there was no structural reason for the knocks or the scratchings and just to be sure, he removed the wainscoting from the rooms that were deemed the worst afflicted. By this point, the spectacle had begun to draw huge crowds and Richard Parsons saw an opportunity to make some quick cash. He would charge people to come into his home and experience the phenomenon, much to Reverend Moore's chagrin. Parsons argued that he had lost earnings due to the phenomena, so he was well within his rights to make some money from it. It was true that one lodger, Catherine Friend, had left the house due to the constant noise. As crowds gathered in the small house, Reverend Moore decided that he needed to take a direct approach with the ghost of Fanny Lyons and get to the bottom of what was really going on. On the 5th of January, Reverend Moore made his way through the throngs of people that were stationed outside the Parsons house. He made his way up the stairs and into the bedroom of Betty and Anne on the first floor. The girls were tucked up in bed together, apparently asleep. In the room was an assortment of the Parsons' friends and relatives, including Mary Fraser, who seemed to have adopted the role of the Master of Ceremonies. When Reverend Thomas Broughton arrived, the session began. Fraser began. Fanny, Fanny, are you there? Please come to us. Dear Fanny, please come. The scratching noises began beneath the children's bed. Moore spoke to the spirit and asked for one knock for yes and two knocks for no. There was a single knock in agreement. Spirit, are you the soul of a departed person? Are you the soul of a person once living in this house? Are you the departed soul of Miss Francis Lines? Are you returned for a purpose? In life, were you harmed by someone? Were you murdered? Were you poisoned? Moore assumed this to be a positive response. Was the person who administered the poison known to you? Was this person William Kent? At the end of the session, as the crowds dispersed into the night, Reverend Moore resolved to find evidence that William Kent had indeed murdered Fanny Lyons. He went on the search for information and was told earnestly by the Parson family that William Kent had coaxed Fanny from Norfolk, how her sister had been Kent's first wife and that she had died, how he and Fanny never married, he was a womanizer, and how he was always short of cash. They talked about the rumours that surrounded Fanny's death, how strange it was that no one had been allowed to see the body and how she was buried in a coffin without a nameplate. An article appeared in the public ledger that read, The following surprising relation gains at this time the particular attention of most of the neighbourhood, that for these two years a great knocking and scratching has been heard in the night in the first floor of the house of the officiating parish clerk of St. Sepulchre's Church in Cock Lane, near West Smithfield, to the great terror of him and his family. To find out the cause, he ordered the wainscot to be taken down, but to no effect. Further knocking and scratching was more violently renewed upon a bedstead whereon the two children lay. The eldest is about 12 years of age. These children were afterwards removed into the two pair of stairs room, where the same noise followed and was frequently heard all night. Some time since, as a publican in the neighbourhood was at the house below stairs in the evening, he saw a shadow much like a woman, who passed by him and beckoned him, upon which he was so terrified that he ran home and was very sick. The clerk, soon after having occasion to go into another room, saw the same appearance. This happened within the hour. Upon these things being told in the neighbourhood, a report was spread that the house was haunted, which induced many persons to sit up all night. Several gentlemen and a worthy clergyman attended. The noise of scratching and knocking was continued in a violent manner. The clergyman addressed himself in this manner. If any injury has been done to any person that had lived in that house, he might be answered in the affirmative by one single knock. 
if, on the contrary, by two knocks, which was immediately answered by one knock. He then asked several questions, all of which were most reasonably answered, and the following account is taken from the responses, that she was a woman, that her name was F, that she lived with Mr. K in a familiar manner, that two years since she was taken ill with the smallpox, and seeing her illness he poisoned her, that she was buried at St. John the Baptist's Clerkenwell. The above affair has now grown so serious and engulfing the general conversation of St. Sepulchre's parish, we are credibly informed one of the clergymen who has entered decently into this mysterious affair has made regular minutes of all of the interrogatories which have passed between the spirit and him, and we doubt not but he will shortly oblige the public with the whole detail to the conviction of the incredulous. William Kent was furious. He presented himself to Reverend Moore and they agreed to attend Cock Lane together. Through the same series of knocks in the children's bedroom as before, William Kent was accused by the spirit of Fanny Lyons and told that he would hang. He was outraged. He went to the doctors that tended to Fanny in her final days and the apothecary who attended the house and the parish priest who presided over her death, all of whom agreed to back him up in whatever situation may arise from these bizarre events. The situation began to grow wildly out of hand. The story was being tracked in every newspaper in London and was a nationwide scandal. Among the believers, there were dissenting voices who believed that the whole situation was a clever hoax orchestrated by the Parson family. Many knocking sessions were had, all of which were transcribed for newspapers. Fanny's ghost seemed to know all of the answers to questions about Fanny's life in London but would get all of the questions wrong about Fanny's life before London, even the names of her family members. Betty was regularly moved around to safe houses to try and stop her from falling prey to a baying mob who either demanded to see the ghost or who were demanding to uncover the hoax. MPs got involved, earls, gentlemen, people who wanted proof of the supernatural and people who wanted to prove that it was a hoax. Eventually, the Mayor of London agreed to hear out both sides of the argument and decide whether William Kent should be tried for murder or whether the situation should be deemed a hoax. The Mayor concluded that there wasn't enough evidence either side, but agreed that Betty Parsons, who seemed to be the source of the ghostly happenings, be released to a team of scholars, doctors and clergymen in order for the phenomena to be examined. Parsons dug his heels in but having no choice, he eventually relented. It's hard to describe the absolute notoriety that this case had gained and how much it had stirred up the mob of London. Dr. Samuel Johnson, the man who wrote the dictionary, was involved, and he literally became the most famous writer of the day. Horace Walpole himself went to visit Cock Lane, being completely intrigued by the ridiculousness of the whole affair. Letters poured into newspapers. Some were outraged that the story was being given so much column inches. Others outlined the ways in which it could be hoaxed, including a letter in which a doctor mused that perhaps the girl had learned to make the noises by placing a pea pod in her vagina. And Manny, who made wonderful commentary on the whole affair. The first night of the examination of Betty Parsons yielded little results. The committee even entered the crypt of Fanny Lyons, at the previous behest of the spirit but to no avail. The ghost had previously stated through a series of raps that she would rap on her coffin if William Kent entered her crypt. He agreed but obviously no sounds emerged. Betty was sent home and it was agreed again that a further examination needed to take place. She was sent to the household of a gentleman but only for a few days as Betty's bedroom was overrun with knocks, scratching and strange whisperings. The woman of the house insisted she was moved out of fear and Betty was yet again moved. This time it was decided that once and for all a definitive answer would be found. Two things happened of note. The first being that Betty had hardened calluses on her knuckles which were indicative of repetitive knocking and secondly... When her hands were above the bed covers, no sounds were made. Betty also did not realise that there was a spy hole in the wall of her quarters and she was seen taking a wooden board from the fireplace and concealing it in her nightclothes. 
A court case ensued in which Cock Lane ghost conspirators were found guilty of fraud. Elizabeth Parsons was sentenced to one year in prison with hard labour. Their friend Mary Fraser was sentenced to six months. Reverend Thomas Moore paid William Kent handsomely for his part and Richard Parsons was sentenced to two years in prison but was also sentenced to three sessions in the pillory where he would be publicly mocked and ridiculed. The pillory was a harsh and dangerous punishment and it was not uncommon for passers-by to attack prisoners who were locked in its grasp. There had been instances of prisoners being stoned to death on the pillory so Parsons was terrified of it. Interestingly, when Parsons was presented in the pillory, he was showered with money. Each time the public collected enough money for him to bribe the guards into obtaining him food, gin and sex for weeks while he was in prison. Somehow Richard Parsons had become a folk hero. In the centuries that have followed, people have speculated wildly about the ghost of Cock Lane. Was it a team effort, with all of the family and Mary Fraser each taking a role in producing the knocking, and of course Reverend Moore being fooled by the whole situation? There are some who speculate that the knocking and scratching is actually evidence of the poltergeist, and that Betty only resorted to trickery when she was backed into a corner, afraid that if the noises didn't appear, her and her family would be punished. Whatever you're thinking, the case shows one thing. We love a ghost story. Centuries ago, people lined the tiny back streets of London, hoping to hear a knock or discover the secret of the charade, and that hunger and thirst for the supernatural still exists to this day. Just as it did on Cock Lane, with the case of Scratching Fanny. I just need to point out that it was actually called the case of Scratching Fanny of Cock Lane, okay? I did not add that in just to be rude. I honestly had to leave it out of the whole story because I'm like a 12 year old boy I couldn't stop laughing at it for listeners outside of the UK and Ireland Fanny is a colloquial term for a vagina just yeah so scratching Fanny of Cock Lane definitely would have made people laugh at the time as well they would have thoroughly enjoyed it uh just in case you're wondering as well Cock Lane is so named because of penises um it is believed that it was one of the oldest streets in london where you could legally procure the services of a sex worker and therefore it became known as cock lane and the name has been cock lane ever since this is such a strange story because it's kind of a ghost story kind of i don't even know if you could call it a true crime like there's so many elements to the story that i had to leave lots of the detail out because it's so detailed it includes so many people And the bulk of my information comes from a book called The Cock Lane Ghost, Murder, Sex and Haunting in Dr. Johnson's London by Paul Chambers. It was a really good book, full of information. It gave all of the cultural context and background to London at the time and also to all of the people who are featured in the story. So you get kind of an insight into like Reverend Moore's background. He actually died when he was 35, very sadly. And you get to know the who's who of who was involved in the case. And it seems like this case like really gripped people, like properly full on gripped people. When Horace Walpole, who was a very famous writer, when he went to Cock Lane to see what was going on for himself, he described it as being so packed that people were practically putting themselves in each other's pockets to try and find space to stand. So it was like packed to the rafters with people trying to hear the bangs and the knocking. And in case you are interested, William Kent went on to marry a woman called Bathsheba and they don't really know when he died, but he did go on to get married again. But she went on to remarry, the the implication being that he probably died quite young as well. I'm really intrigued by the character of William Kent. I mean, that man threw caution to the wind when it came to his sexual relationships Like everyone knew in those days that if you had sex outside of wedlock, it was going to be a problem. All right. Particularly if you were of, you know, quote unquote, high status. He gets with Elizabeth Kent. He gets her pregnant. They have to get married. She gives birth to a baby six months later. And then obviously, very sadly, she dies and the baby dies. He then moves to London. He loans his first landlord a load of money. The landlord doesn't pay him back. He has to take legal action against the landlord. And then he gets with Fanny and they can't get married but she gets pregnant. 
And we already know from experience that that's going to cause some problems. And then he loans Richard Parson 12 guineas, which apparently is like a load of money. And Richard Parsons doesn't pay it back. And yet again, he has to take legal action. Either that man is very trusting or very naive. And I don't know which one it is. And just like Justin Long in Tusk, like if you're a douchebag podcaster who makes terrible jokes that are offensive and not very funny, does that mean your body should be chopped up and you should be turned into a walrus? Probably not. If you are a man who keeps getting women pregnant outside of wedlock and you get into a scrap with a man who owes you money, does that mean you then should be falsely accused by a poltergeist of murdering your wife and hanged? Again, probably not. Imagine though waking up in the morning and you read the newspapers and suddenly there's this story in front of you that is you and your deceased partner's story where people are going oh yeah this this man like stole this girl away from Norfolk to Kent got her pregnant and then she died of smallpox but actually this ghost that now lives in Cock Lane says that she was poisoned I'd be furious too I'd be pretty fucking angry about that I'd also be really furious if the general public gave my deceased partner the moniker of scratching fanny (laughs) This is such a ridiculous story, but I it would annoy me. I'd be like, come on, you got to think of something better, right? I know it's raunchy. I know that the tabloids like a bit of raunch, but I would be annoyed. I think the most intriguing thing about this story is that this story, this almost identical story of two young girls in a household, banging, knocking, scratching is heard. People think it's supernatural and then they think, oh, maybe it's not supernatural. Maybe it's the, the two girls involved. That happened years before. And it continued happening for years afterwards and still in reality happens to this day. So if you think about the Enfield haunting, for example, you've got young girls in a household. There's banging, there's scratching, there's things being moved around. There's girls being thrown into the air. All these experts are whizzed in because they're going to be, they're going to figure out whether or not it's supernatural or not. The girls are put under this enormous scrutiny and there are tabloid newspapers all over the place who are writing about the story. It's front page news everywhere. Everybody has an opinion on it. And the same thing happens a couple of years before in Battersea with the Battersea poltergeist and Shirley Hitchings in particular, who was the girl that was at the centre of the Battersea poltergeist case. She was treated horrendously by the tabloid media. I remember listening to the episode of Battersea poltergeist where Danny and her talked about the experiences that she had with the tabloid newspaper. And and it was I mean, it was vile. It was vile the way she was spoken about. She was like, she was talked about as having a poltergeist boyfriend in the house, like a much older boyfriend. And it just really, this wild sexualization of this 16 year old girl, like she was a child and they just kind of made a fool of her in these stories. And like I said, really sexualized her. And then there was at one point where she was just taken away to be studied by these like, quote unquote experts. And she still didn't really know who these people were and It always feels like a little bit exploitative when the tabloids get involved, particularly when there's when there's young people involved. And I know you you can't say that Richard Parsons didn't want this because he, you know, he made money from it. He obviously orchestrated a lot of it along with his daughter and along with his partner and their friend. So obviously they they had ideas about what was going to happen, but they probably didn't think that it was going to get as big as it was. It was going to be in the newspapers everywhere. That poor Betty was going to be taken away and put into a room with all these strange men who were like, perform for us now because we want to see if you're a fraud or not. And it was um, it was noted that in the, in the interrogation where she was taken away from the family, she was told, if you don't make the ghost appear, your family are all going to be taken to prison. So Betty was, and it was noted that she was absolutely terrified because she really thought her family were all going to be taken to prison if she didn't do something. And it was then that she got the stick from the fireplace, put it in her pyjamas and made the noise. So the kind of, the idea that they had faked the whole thing was done under the proviso that if she could fake it once, she could fake it every single time, which also happened in the Enfield Poltergeist case where Janet said, yeah, we faked it some of the time because everyone came to the house and kept expecting the ghost to perform and while I do think this story is a hoax I think there is two elements to it there's a money-making element and there's an element of getting revenge on William Kent I still always have to think that at the center of this there was a little girl and a little girl who 
was being made to perform by her family and obviously willingly went along with it in the beginning but then was put under enormous pressure by groups of men who were very powerful in society and she didn't know what to do and didn't know which end of her was up and was fundamentally terrified by the end of it. And at the end of the day her and Fanny had been really really good friends. They had been little bosom buddies in that household for a period of time for I think it was at least five months They were together in that house and being really good friends and sharing a room together and all that stuff. And also she had died, you know, Betty's friend had died, which is sort of never really mentioned in the entirety of the breakdown of this case is that Betty's friend died. I also need to give a honourable mention to Carrots. So Esther, who was the maid in the house, was called Carrots because she had red hair. Not very original, not a very original nickname, but as somebody who loves Carrots, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, applaud the nickname also. She becomes a really unlikely hero in this story as well, but it was kind of difficult to include it in the narrative without including huge swathes of just information and exposition. So she was called into one of these sessions during one of these knocking sessions, um, the ghost, the alleged ghost of Fanny Lyons had said that she was poisoned. She was poisoned by William Kent. She did actually have smallpox, but then William Kent saw his opportunity when she had smallpox, smallpox and poisoned her so that nobody would know what had happened. And during those knocks and raps, she also stated that Carrots had been in on the plot, that she knew what was happening. She witnessed the poison being administered And she was somebody that could verify what had happened. And when Carrots was called into the room with all of these clergymen and all of these people saying, you know what happened, you saw it. And she was faced with the apparent ghost of Fanny Lyons. She stood, she stood strong and she said, no, none of this happened. I watched her die. She didn't speak for four days before she died. She was really unwell. She didn't tell me anything. She never said she was poisoned. I never knew anything about William Kent poisoning her. He loved her and he loved her dearly. He never would have done that to her. And she stuck with it, stuck with it to the point where she was told that like she had to confess. She wasn't going to be allowed to leave, blah, blah, blah. And she burst her way out of the house and didn't come back. She was like, no, I'm not lying about this. So she was a very cool character in all of this that I really enjoyed. And the last thing I'm going to say about this story is that I'm really interested by the fact that Richard Parsons became this folk hero the the pillory was notorious it was horrific uh, i've spoken before in stories about how i think it was in one of the witches stories where one of the witches was locked in a pillory and she was beaten like and her face was badly injured her nose was broken while she was locked in the pillory like people used to use it as an opportunity to punish prisoners who de- who they thought didn't get enough punishment So when Richard Parsons was first meant to go in the pillory, his mental health was so poor that they didn't lock him in it because they they said that he wasn't in any fit state to be taken out of the prison. And when he was eventually locked in it, he was absolutely petrified and people handed around a hat and collected money for him. Nobody threw anything at him, no tomatoes, no nothing. He was sort of given this like hero's welcome. And when he went in the pillory, he had to go in three different locations. It was like Cock Lane somewhere else I can't remember the other two locations and in each location it was the same he was given a hero's welcome and given loads of money and in prison at the time in like the prison was horrendous but if you had money you could bribe the guards to get you food alcohol sex workers whatever you wanted and he ended up getting huge amounts of money every time he went into the pillory which would have obviously made his time in prison slightly more bearable for a period of time but I can't really quite get my head around why he was this folk hero Because I don't think the people of London really believed in the end that there was a ghost. I mean, maybe they saw this man who, like all of them, had been completely brought to his knees by alcohol addiction because the government had completely lifted a ban on alcohol willy-nilly and gin was incredibly cheap and then panicked and reinstated a ban and it left everybody in a state where they couldn't get the thing that they were really dependent on. So maybe they recognised, look, he is one of us and he's out here just trying to make money. He's just trying to make money and he's trying to get one up on a man of a higher status in kind of like a Robin Hood type way, except it wouldn't be like steal from the rich and give to the needy. It would just be steal from the rich, the end. So I don't know. I don't quite understand why he became this folk hero, but he did. And maybe it was because he was a man who took on the church. He took on a man of higher status. He took on the the 
literate of London. He took on all of the gentlemen, the MPs, and he kept that lie going and he convinced a lot of people. So maybe that was maybe that was why he was considered a folk hero. Either way, I loved this story. I just think it's such a wickedly interesting story. If you want to get the kind of the full breakdown of the story, I can highly recommend the Cock Lane Ghost book if you can find it. I'm not entirely sure where you can find it. I got mine on World of Books um, because I was able to get it secondhand there. And also, as I said last week, I can also recommend an illustrated history of ghosts. That is a very, very fun little book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It's full of lovely illustrations. It is by Adam Allsuch Boardman and it would kind of be like a perfect gift book. And as always, just as I said last week, I'm not getting paid for saying any of that. I genuinely mean it. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Real Life Ghost Stories. Remember, if you would like to know anything about Real Life Ghost Stories, you can check out reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. If you've got a spooky story that you would like to send in, you can send it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. If you are desperate for more content, you can sign up to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, including every main and mini episode completely ad free. If you can at all, please don't forget to sling Real Life Ghost Stories of vote in the Irish Podcast Awards Listener's Choice Award and on that note I shall see you next time